Welcome in to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am Will Strickson. I'm joined today by the great Robin Davison. How are you, Robin? I'm brilliant once again after that compliment, mate. Thank you. I'm going to keep expecting this now. Yeah, every time. I think you have to actually change your all your social media handles to the great. Oh, it's already been done. Yeah, and my legal <laughs> my legal name as well. Yeah, yeah. On the show this week, we have a really good conversation with Yanto Barker, former pro and current CEO of the Col. But first, Robin, importantly, everyone wants to know what's going on in your life. Do you know what? It's really funny you ask that. Last night, I watched a really weird, a really weird program on Netflix. It's one of those things where I'm currently with my sister at the moment, at the moment, even. She has a really cute dog. I don't know if I bring this up every time we record the podcast, but I will continue to do so. Uh, And we were flicking through on Netflix and it was one of those events where you can't find anything, you can't settle on anything. So you have to settle for Tour de France Unchained. (laughs) Stop it. Uh, So I scrolled down to the uh, 30-minute comedies, which is like a real sweet spot for my attention span. And when I was scrolling through those bad boys, up popped Melissa McCarthy with the series. I had no idea this was a thing as a... As a Melissa McCarthy enjoyer, I was transfixed. So I put it on. It's called God's Favourite Idiot, I believe. Straight away, it starts with her real-life husband. I think the listeners should be aware that this is a genuine show and this isn't just your dream that you've had. Yeah, it's not a it's not a dream. I didn't consume alcohol. It was, I swear to God, this is a real show. And so in every... In every film or TV show that Melissa McCarthy does, she involves her husband, Ben Falcone, who's kind of the main guy in uh, in this series. What happens is he gets struck by lightning at the beginning and then just has like a slew of bad luck. And also any time this bad luck happens, uh, Sign of the Times by Harry Styles just keeps playing and playing and playing. Uh, it's very, it was very strange. I have not finished it. I don't know if I'm, uh, if I'm equipped to to finish it, but it was certainly very interesting. Well, have you, uh, have you seen any good Melissa McCarthy films recently? Ever? No. Um. Watch your mouth. <laughs> interesting on that Sign of the Times thing, not on Harry Styles, but I watched another show a couple of years ago called Russian Doll on Netflix, if you haven't watched it. Yeah. So they do, I've not seen the second series, but the first series, they do a similar thing with Harry Nielsen. I think the song's called Got Get Up, which is uh, such a good song. Oh, groovy. Yeah, banger. And they sort of, the premise of the show is that it's sort of a bit Groundhog day e, but not really, because oh. she dies and then comes back, and it's like the start. And every time it comes back, that song's playing, and it sort of starts to get a bit creepy from like a good vibe song and then it gets a bit creepy and it's it's really good. I recommend that show. I can't recommend the second series because I've not seen it, but the first one's really good. Oh, I got a question for you. If whenever something bad yeah, happens in your life and you experience a bit of bad luck, what song would you like playing in the background each and every time? See, that's really difficult because firstly you've got to consider the amount of time something bad goes on which for me is never because my life is perfect well for me it's every day so we balance each other out that way i guess but you you have to think about whether you have something bad whether you want to drown in it wallow in your sadness or whether you want something to pick you back up again because you don't want to ruin a good song you don't want to ruin a good song because you kind of just want to be like you know 
stick on some Noel Gallagher song and just wallow in hatred. <laughs> do you know what I mean? No, I get you. I get you. I don't think I want to put a song on that I like because it'd kill it for me very quickly. I'd I'd probably go for a Mac Miller song. I mean, an upbeat one like the Spins. Anything else, I'd start wallowing in it and just it'd get a lot. Because you you want to pick it back, pick pick you back up. Yeah, yeah. And I listen to Mac Miller every day anyway, so I feel like it doesn't really make that much of a difference. It'll blend in, yeah. <laughs> or maybe what you should do is you should listen to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. That's a very good shout. Although you might run out of podcasts if you're saying bad things are happening every day. <laughs> speaking of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Yes, speaking of, we should get to it, shouldn't we? Because no one wants to hear about us anymore. Apart from me. <laughs> Let's get to it. Jan Tubarka. Welcome into the Cyclist Magazine podcast. He's a former pro cyclist for the likes of Driving Force Logistics, UK Youth and One Pro Cycling. Finished ninth in the 2005 Tour of Britain, competed for Wales at the Commonwealth Games. He's a founder and CEO of clothing brand Lacole, And most importantly, he's the holder of the Richmond Park KOM. It's Yanto Barker. Yanto, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So first of all, talk us through that moment when you got the Richmond Park Strava KOM. Um, well, uh, it's the culmination of a lot of hard work, actually. I don't know anyone, if anyone who doesn't know the, the actual lap, it's about just over 10k uh, with a little bit of elevation and a few corners. So you have to actually get the pacing very, very uh, accurate. Otherwise, you end up blowing towards the end. So you also have to pick the right time in the day when there's not a lot of traffic and avoid deer and dogs and all sorts of obstacles. So actually, genuinely, it is quite an achievement. I know there's a few people in the area who go out and do as many fast laps as they can they can do. So I've, I've become an expert on Richmond Park uh, environmental conditions uh, suitable for a very fast lap. Are you always watching to make sure no one is, you know, going to beat you, cutting people off at a corner just in case? <laughs> no, on the contrary, I've given lots of people all the advice I could possibly, you know, given my experience in cycling and the, I've probably done over a thousand laps of the park. I could tell you just on feel if it was a fast day or a slow day, depending on wind direction or heat temperature, temperature in the air, uh, humidity, all that kind of stuff, air pressure. And, you know, I'm all for fair game. So I give everyone all the tips. I tell them when it's the fast, you know, fast times. And, um, you know, then, then we've all got the same information. It's all down to performance. And then get ready to beat them again if they don't <laughs> take your time. That's the game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so going back a number of years... You dropped out of school to become a pro cyclist, right? Talk us through how that all went down. And obviously you were cycling before then. You didn't just be like, okay, I'm going to stop. Also, let's not say number of years, you know, it, it was the it was the other day. It was the other day. No, I don't mind. I'm quite happy uh, being the age I am. And the number of years that have gone by since I finished school is, is a lot is a lot now. So that's okay. Yeah, it was a funny story, really. Can I, I think back and, you know, you don't know what you know, do you? you so much hindsight and so much experience over 25, 30 years of, I'm 43 now, so for anyone who's wondering, um, you know, what do you think as a kid like that? And I, I don't know that I'd give the same advice to my kids that dropping out of school is a good idea, but what is kind of consistent with lots of people who either have a lot of drive or have been able to rise up in their fields of expertise and become either experts or successful or whatever is they've always got a clear vision. And I think going back even to 14, 15 years old, I had a really clear vision and I believed in myself that I could achieve it. And I think that's probably the, the backbone of the decision-making process to come back from school one day and tell my mum, my basically, um, 
I'm going to leave school and I'm going to do it today. And she said, well, before you make that decision, you kind of need to understand we were quite a, you know, I had a modest upbringing, quite a poor family, uh, single parent family. So she said, I get family credit and it would stop if you're not, not at higher education. So I, you would need to basically cover the shortfall in what would be no longer eligible for. And I said, how much is it? She told me. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. As a contingency, I spoke to a friend of mine who ran a gardening business and I asked him if I needed a day or two a week every now and again, would he mind? Could I come and work for him? And he said, yes. In the end, I probably only did about six or seven days and the rest was all done on winnings. And, you know, I, I, I backed myself and I, and I achieved it kind of thing. So that was the beginning of my cycling full-time career at 16. So you were confident you'd be able to make the money then when you dropped out? It wasn't just like dropping out on a whim? Yeah, I think that was the point I made to my mum, which is I'm not dropping out to do nothing. I've got something better to do. And I believe that this could be a path for me in my life that will lead to, you know, fulfillment and satisfaction and ultimately, you know, support me and later my family, which it has done. Do you remember your first professional win, what that felt like? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh, Professional win. I mean, winning is hard, you know, winning is really hard at any level. So you kind of remember how much hard work and and how much trying goes into winning. You know, it takes, as a cyclist, it's not like running. If you're a good runner, you you win regularly. You're you're kind of, if you're the favorite, then you pretty much win 60 or 70% of the time. As a cyclist, you can be, you know, if you win three races a year and you do 75, 80 races, that's not bad. You know, so I remember my first win as, I was still a junior, but I had dispensation to ride senior races. And it was a local race in August, really beautiful weather in a little village called uh, Bobby Tracy. And my parents were there, lots of family, people I knew from the local club. I rode for Mid-Devon Cycling um, Club. And it was, like I said, it was a beautiful sunny day. And I and I kind of had a conversation with one of the older members of the club about what, how I should win this race or how I could potentially win this race. And I followed that plan and I remember crossing the line first and I was on my own for about the last two Ks maybe. And I was just like, this is amazing. This is brilliant. I need more of this. So that was that was a really kind of formative experience. So I was probably 17 then, so a long time ago now. And then I actually didn't win that often in my career. You know, you can actually have a very good living in cycling, not winning. That's the thing that probably a lot of people, again, not like rowing, running, skiing if you don't win you're, you're not very good in cycling you could be really 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 good and not win so I was more of a team captain you know I did win a few races but and what was one of your favorite days on the bike that you experienced that's a really good question and I think there have been so so many I'm so lucky I've ridden literally in every continent I've been to America Australia all of Europe Asia Thailand South Africa, like I've been everywhere cycling. So I've had the fortunate, you know, ability to be able to pick from pretty much anywhere on the planet to ride. But actually it's about the company that you keep. Um, I think all the best days have got nice sunny weather and they usually include feeling good as well, you know, good sensations. So I'm kind of, I'm trying to, I'm literally thinking through and narrowing down the options. But actually I've also had some really good days post-retirement, which, you know, were not, they weren't races. They weren't, it wasn't training for anything. It was just riding. And they've been some of the best days I've ever had in my life. So not the best day, but some of the best days. Um, so I think I'll pick, I'll pick a ride that I did recently, probably the last 18 months with two friends of mine, Richard Todd and Alex Richardson, who rides for St. Pirin. 
And uh, I think it was just the three of us. And we just went out and we did through and off for maybe 90 Ks. And they're both such amazing riders, both of them. Uh, Alex, obviously a full-time pro, but Richard, my friend Richard is a lawyer. He's a freak of nature and with an amazing engine to go through and off with basically world tour pro like Alex and an old dog like me, who's, you know, still knows a few tricks. So that was, that was a beautiful, beautiful ride around Surrey, but there's been many, many, many more ones. And you've ridden with obviously quite a collection of rides over the years, including some that went on to quite big things. Who's the best rider and who's your favorite rider that you've raced with? Oh, well, my favorite rider is probably the easiest one to start with. Um, who I raced with was a, was a rider called Michel Bartoli. Um, and the reason why he was my favorite was because he was a poster on my wall before I raced with him. And then I did the Tour of Britain with him, probably that 2005 Tour of Britain that you mentioned at the top of this podcast. And I undenied about the courage to go up and say, I, I cycle because, because I saw you win uh, Flanders in 1996 or whatever it was. And you were a poster on my wall. And I was like, wow, I want to be like you. I don't think I did in the end, but um, I wanted to. And then like the best riders, do you know what? Again, I've ridden with some amazing guys, probably someone like Jeremy Hunt, who's obviously ex Cervelo test team, team sky uh, bookmaker back in the day. And a good friend of mine, he grew up uh, in the same place in Devon where I, where I grew up. And uh, he, he was such an incredible athlete and strong character he also helped me out a lot, you know, in the early, early years when I was a junior, I used to go training with him and, you know, he, he would do the right thing and absolutely kick my head in, which obviously did not a bad job and didn't kill me. So it made me stronger. So that was good. Do you ever think that if you were coming through like a little bit later when sort of Team Sky were coming through, you'd have had a very different career? Uh, I, occasionally I reflect on this. I do think it it's easier now for a British rider to be a world tour rider. So, you know, I never actually signed a world tour contract and uh, it's a bit of disappointment. You know, I feel like I did do enough to get one in particular, probably 2005, I was 25 top 10 in the tour of Britain, but I also was a podium on the nationals behind Russell Downing and Steve Cummins. And I also had a number of other, a uh, couple of wins and a number of other very high, either podium or top five UCI races, and I, I definitely deserved a, a world tour contract, but you know, Team Sky didn't exist, and there were riders going to lots of different teams. And also, Australians really were weirdly fashionable as a nation for riders to be popular in the foreign teams. So not in Australian teams, but in French teams, Belgian teams. So yeah, I think a little bit politics always plays a part in every industry, probably all the time to to a certain degree. And I would lie if I didn't say I think it had an influence to the negative effect on my own career. But I don't, I don't regret it. I had a fantastic time and, you know, I finished my career at 36, having got, got it all out of myself. I have nothing left to, to give. And you did, you initially retired earlier, right? When you went up and set off Lacol. What went through your first sort of retirement? Was that because you had Lacol in mind or was it because you had enough? Uh, because I had enough, actually. That was 2006, and it was partly off the back of the results that I just mentioned in the 2005 season that didn't result in a contract that was, you know, at a minimum enough to see some significant progress. That was quite disappointing. And I felt a bit disheartened with my, with the sport, you know, I started at 16, I'd given my life to it since then. So effectively 10 years already, a decade by the age, I, by the age I was. And I needed a break, to be honest, I needed to find something else. I actually never planned to come back to cycling. I was, I was basically, I was scared that 
I wasn't getting paid the contracts that one, I thought I deserved, but two, I would need to be paid to be able to relax at the end of a normal length career. So like, let's say mid thirties, late thirties, maybe even 40. And I was going to have to reinvent myself and get a new job at that stage, almost certainly. And I think that realization sinking in made me really, really nervous to the point where I thought, well, actually, if I'm going to have to reinvent myself, I'd rather do it sooner than later. It's going to be a lot harder in my mid twenties than it is going to be in my late thirties. And I think that was quite a prudent decision because having gone through retirement twice, and I call it twice because the first three years, for, for 18 months, I did zero exercise. I didn't part, I didn't watch you know the Tour de France or any races. I didn't have anything to do with pretty much anyone in cycling. I properly checked out. And it was awful. Like It was really bad. To, to the extent I would, I would probably go back and class myself as I was depressed for a year there. Um, I didn't get diagnosed and I didn't get any kind of medication or anything for it. But looking back in hindsight, it was it was serious and I was really low for quite a long time. And all of that actually informed the second time that I retired. And I think it's really pertinent to all, definitely athletes, but also I think probably servicemen and women, anyone who's done a job for 20, 25 years, to make a change, a shift, is such a psychological breaking of your identity that's meshed in with this activity. It's really difficult. And I know a lot of my peers who didn't take a sort of bitter pill in the middle of their career and take a few years out, took it all at the end after having been looked after so amazingly well as you are when you're an international level cyclist. You get all your kit provided, all your bikes provided, clean, washed, service, flights booked, picked up, dropped off. You are so well taken care of. And I think the Team Sky mentality took it another step, which is anything that might be a distraction or a mental hindrance in any way, they attempt to eliminate that from the athlete's sphere of vision. And what that creates is an athlete who's totally incapable of overcoming any adversity outside of their totally narrow single band of purpose, which as a cyclist is basically ride your bike, eat, sleep, and perform and deliver results. So I look at someone like Bradley Wiggins, who I'm sure everyone's seen you know, recent um, publications that he's done on his interviews and podcasts and things where I think he, you know, he's really suffering. And I think it's really amplified by the way that Team Sky in particular, but also British Cycling, when it came to winning results at the Olympics, treated their athletes. My, my, just, just for a bit more context, my wife works for UK Sport and is very close to the way governing bodies, policies affect individual athletes' um, results when it comes to medal tables over the years in Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games world championships and that kind of thing so actually i i get quite a good visibility on what the policies are how they're changing and i think they are changing for the better again another one similar similar generation to me uh victoria pendleton um who also has definitely left the sport with quite a bitter taste in her mouth with how she was treated and you know dealing with the rest of life was quite difficult i've gone on a bit there but basically yeah it was retiring is hard and doing it twice is probably a bit easier you kind of spread it out because you learn the lessons the first time that you then know you have to really focus on uh, the second time. How did you sort of find yourself coming back into the sport then after you, like you say, you were depressed, you weren't exercising or anything? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's again a really good question. And I think for me, I divide my career into two halves. The first half, 16 to 26, the second half, uh, 29 to 36. And the first half of my career, and I'm sure lots and lots of athletes, if they're listening to this, especially young ones, will feel this. I felt handcuffed. I call it handcuffed because you're so tightly connected to your potential. 
that it was like a mental stress all the time that I might be giving away my potential and that would later result in a lack of results. This is going to sound extreme and I know a lot of people probably won't relate to this, but there's some people that will, but I literally felt like I would starve to death if I didn't deliver results. Yeah. So if you imagine going out training every day with that weight and pressure that I would starve to death if I didn't, you know, train hard, work hard and deliver results, that that is quite a strain to live under. So the second half of my career, with a bit of support from people around me, taking myself out of, of, of the competition of racing and speaking to people outside of cycling in different industries and different areas, I probably gained a much better perspective on the world and was able to apply that in the second half of my career. When I came back, I basically gave up my potential and I felt quite comfortable and relaxed doing that because in your early 20s, there's so much potential still to come. Basically, by the time I was 29 and I started racing again, I, I kind of, I am who I am. So there's no potential anymore. I'm basically just being the rider that I am and I'm as good as I am. And I'll try my best to deliver the best results for the rider that I am. But I'm not going to turn into a climber and I'm not going to turn into a time trial specialist. You know, I'm a pretty decent all rounder. And I felt, and I was kind of happy with that. Whereas I didn't have that relaxed kind of feeling about who I was and what I might become. It was a lot, a lot of pressure. I know. I'm assuming from that impression that that second half was a lot more fun for you. Much more fun. Yeah, I had a great time. Like I basically treated it like a holiday. It was genuinely a paid holiday with numbers and, and um, you know, prize money at the end of it. <laughs> I used to say to my teammates, genuinely, I had lots of conversations with younger teammates in their early 20s when I was probably 33, 34, 35. And I'd be like, guys, this is, this is the best. We're on this beautiful bus. You know, I remember a particular couple of races, um, Tour of Slovenia, Tour of Slovenia or Slovakia, oh, somewhere in the Baltics, basically. <laughs> Uh, we were, we, it was 2015 or 2016 and um, it was with One Pro Cycling and we were on a nice big bus, lots of comfy seats, massage, all the food, nice coffee, great friends, driving around this amazing scenery to these race starts, then doing this amazing race, which went through all the most beautiful roads. And I was like, this is nice hotels as well. That was a good one. And I just remember saying to them, this is a holiday. People pay lots of money to go and ride in places like this, get their bike looked after and service like they do. And, you know, we're, we're just doing it for, we're doing it to get paid. It's great. And what was one of your favorite races during that, that second period that you were racing in? A couple, I would say probably predominantly the UK ones. Yeah. I really, I really liked the Tour of Britain. Um, Obviously home roads, uh, lots and lots of amazing fans on the road. The, The concentration of fans in the UK is actually almost unparalleled, I think, especially for a British rider, even the Tour de France. They do get that many people, but they're normally, you know, only really on the big climbs. Whereas, you know, you imagine going through Yorkshire, Tour of Yorkshire, they were like five or six deep the entire 180k stage. So that was always a real pleasure. I really liked, uh, well, I obviously, I did a race, uh, Kern Brussels Kern in 2016, which was like the semi-classics. That's like the, the start of the season. And I managed to get in the breakaway with like um, Greg Van Avermaet, Luke Rowe, Tom Boonen, and I felt like this is where I, this is where I belong. This is this is who I am. This that was actually my last year, so it was a bit disappointing that I didn't get more opportunities to do that. But riding those classic, those literally classic cobbles, climbs, roads, finishes that I'd watched on the TV for so many years, and since also watched lots of times, 
I feel proud of that that result, even though we got caught in the breakaway in the end. But I was in a you know a proper select group with the best riders in the world and felt like I could I could hold my own. So that was good. Not the Chorley Grand Prix then. No, Chorley was good. I remember suffering a lot in the Chorley Grand Prix, and I can't remember what result I got, 11th or 12th or something. Is that where you're from? Uh, yeah, it was like when I lived in Preston, that was my local race, and I was devastated when it got cancelled. It was a good race. It's a shame. Yeah, the, the UK scene is definitely suffering, but that, I remember that race. It was it was hard. I wasn't on a great day that day, but it was it was a great, great race. Well, we're doing local races. My, my local, most local race uh, was actually the only semi- race I've ever done was a precursor to when the milk race returned for a crit in Nottingham. So before the race, they had a little like the services uh, sort of relay around the circuit. And then me, my dad, my brother and a couple of neighbours dressed up as Robin Hood, Merry Men and Maid Marion and sort of raced against like the police, the fire service, the ambulance. We came second to last, but I came in second to last and I finished second to last. What character were you, Maid Marion? Uh, no, no. You as uh, whatever I was, maybe like thirteen at the time. You'd be very glad I wasn't Maid Marion. I was one of the merry men. <laughs> but yeah, service to the culture, anyway. So when you returned, you had Lacol was started at that time. Yes. How did that go? And I'm assuming from what you've just said, it helped that you were considering racing more fun at that time to then do that on the side. I mean. There's, it's quite a complex sort of uh, development, I would say, because I, I, I finished racing in 2006. It was Commonwealth Games in March, 25th of March uh, in Melbourne. And that was my last race. And, and at the time, that was the last race I was ever going to ride. Uh, and then I went through a process of trying to decide, well, what am I going to do next? And what do I know? And literally everything I, obviously anything I know was connected to cycling. So while I did have a couple of random jobs, genuinely really random jobs there was nothing really that was going to give me a career path or any future that I could kind of rely on apart from maybe if I started my own business and then I was thinking well if I'm going to do that it would have to be in cycling there's that's where my connections are that's what I know about and while I wasn't paying attention at the time I could remember back and think oh that was a good idea or that wasn't a good idea so that helped form some ideas and actually I came up with a couple of ideas of either doing um, holidays training being a coach, which is quite popular for riders that have finished racing now, bikes, components, all separate ideas, uh, clothing. And I think the clothing was the one that gave me the most confidence that I could scale it and it could really go somewhere. And then I was like, well, if I start riding again, so I've come up with the idea for Lacole and I've kind of decided that it's not called that yet, but I've decided that it's going to be apparel as opposed to bikes or holidays. And I think, well, if I ride, then I can kind of promote my own business. And, uh, you know, uh, while I'm not, you know, a huge name, I'm definitely big enough to have a reason to be there. And, you know, I can put that name on a jersey and I reckon I can get a few results in the second half of my career. So that was my that was my thinking. And, and it really did work. You know, I did. I was able to kind of start getting the name out there and people to know about us in a way that would have cost a lot of money otherwise, which I didn't have. I literally started this business with zero. And I got a Giro d'Italia winner in your kit. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's a funny experience because if someone in the very beginning said, you will get this far, but it will take this long, I would actually have been really disappointed. And I would have felt like at the time, well, that's ages, you know. So from start from conception to, to the Giro win is about 15 years, and maybe just a bit less, 14, 13 years from proper conception. So that's before the business has really started. And if you told me then that's how long it would take, I'd be like, oh, surely it's got to happen quicker than that. 
But during the time when you're working on this on businesses, and if you're a founder and you're starting it from scratch, you predominantly spend 95% of your time worrying that you might go bust any day. And actually, what you end up thinking is feeling grateful that you're still alive and the business is still, you know, solvent every day you get you get up in the morning, which is not a guarantee. Did you have any other names in mind before you decided on Lacole? Yeah, lots. So many, I like literally had papers, lists and lists and lists that I, I can't remember now. But um, I actually wasn't that, I wasn't that impressed with Lacole when, it, when I kind of first sort of landed on it. I was a bit sort of underwhelmed and I felt a bit, like surely there's a better name than that out there uh and it wasn't until about six months later you know there's, there's so many jobs to do when you start a business I, you know i spent a while thinking about names and then i was actually getting to the point where i needed to register things and apply for a company's house and domain names and all that kind of stuff and then i was like well that's top of the pile right now even if i'm not very happy with it so either i'm gonna have to start delaying my company's house and that's always a risk in case someone else comes up with a name uh, so I was like, well, I better just go with it. That's it now. I've run out of time to think of a better one. That'll have to do. And was there a moment along the way? I know you're saying, obviously, just staying afloat is great, but that you sort of realized, okay, this is actually going to work? I would say there's this weird dichotomy in your head around lots and lots of confidence and totally paranoid that the confidence is unfounded. And if before I started a business, someone had explained that, that level of confidence and that level of doubt could exist in the same person. I wouldn't believe them, but that's my genuine experience. So yes, I had lots of confidence that it would work, but I like almost to the point where it's been a premonition that it would work. And I would say, I have dreams about the, you know, major success or outcomes that we, that we've achieved already, but at the same time thinking, but what if I'm wrong and how can I rely on that? I just don't, I don't trust it. So it kind of keeps you sharp and on the ball because i think complacency is one of the most dangerous things to let seep in especially as a founder and a ceo where you've got to make really critical decisions every day and it really matters but also things like the in the beginning i literally would stress and lose sleep over 500 pounds you know 500 pounds is not a huge amount of money but it's not nothing but i feel the same about five million pounds now you know what i mean and it's it's the same level of concern the same level of importance and it's just what's that's what's relative to me in a way in this business. And you and I'm sure there'll be a next level where it's fifty million pounds, and one day maybe it's five hundred million pounds. You never know. But I'm sure you, you, it, so far it's just felt exactly the same, even though there's been more and more zeros added on. So there's this wonderful thing about cyclists: we can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones, and I'd be all like, "Yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement." And it is. But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, it turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ, and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling, with Ketone IQ, 
your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about World Tour teams like Jumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for, for longer. So if you fancy giving them a try um, and free energy for faster riding, you know, why not? Uh, then visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to get 20% off. So that's hvmn.com and the promo code cyclist for a 20% discount. And also, if you want to learn more about how ketones work, then HVMN's got a brilliant podcast, which is also really worth a listen. It's called Health Via Modern Nutrition with Dr. Lat Mansour. And you can find it in all the usual places. And don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast comes from Cyclist, which is also a magazine which you can subscribe to and get every single month. It's filled to the brim with epic rides, gear reviews and more. Plus, we're also a website, cyclist.co.uk, and you can check out our brilliant social channels for up-to-date pro, tech and everything else coverage. That's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Threads, TikTok, Strava and LinkedIn. I've got one that you might find it slightly offensive. Has anyone ever bought Lacole kit that's not on a Strava discount? Because it seems like every day there's this new Strava Lacole challenge. And my dad's always sending me the discount. So I've just bought a thing. Here's 50% off. <laughs> Strava's amazing. Strava's done a fantastic job for us. And, you know, they have an incredible business that works really well with ours. So it's not an insult at all. Don't worry. And actually, it's it's even more impressive that no one else has really managed to connect with that audience on there in the same way that we have, um, even though we started in 2017. And I remember the first challenge. And I remember how much you know revenue it generated with those, with those um, rewards. And now it's so much bigger, like much, much, much bigger. And for, for a long time, you were like, how long can this go on for? But, you know, Strava has 100 million users and also not like... Uh, Facebook and Instagram, there's no algorithm. So we've got a 670,000 member club on Strava where we can share and inform them of, you know, early release or training tips or whatever. There's no algorithm. There's no requirement to pay to boost that to get to your full audience. So you look at Instagram followings of 100,000, 200,000, 300,000. It's not worth the same as 100,000 Strava members on your, on the local Strava club. So it's, it's hugely powerful and it's been a huge, um, you know, uh, asset to us that we've really worked hard to develop and improve. And how do you ensure that a brand like Lacole stays relevant throughout the years? Like, how do you kind of refresh it in people's minds? There's pretty industry standard, like seasonal things that you talk about, topics. But for us, you know, you think about if you break that question down, you know, who are we as a brand? Uh, we're performance, we're supportive, we are both grassroots and like say, you know, Giro winning world tour level with Bora. And you design a communication plan that starts to talk to each of those segments of the database and the cohort and people and demographics. And actually, once you break it down, you know, genuinely and sincerely, I've come through every level of cycling from grassroots as a kid up to world class level. And I can think back and remember what it feels like to be at every stage. So, you know, while we are a little bit exclusive on price, we're not the cheapest brand out there. 
I genuinely worked really, really hard to be as inclusive as possible for for all genders, you know, ethnicities and all that kind of stuff, because we are all experiencing a very, very similar thing in cycling. And it's about articulating that, designing products that fit the needs for those cyclists. And they're not always the same. Uh, for instance, things like bib shorts or waist shorts. Some people can feel a bit like I'm not confident enough to wear bib shorts and that waist shorts is just somehow a lot easier for them to get on. They don't feel like it's so serious and they can enjoy their ride better. So we cater for that just as much as we do for the world tour rider trying to get the last 1% out of his performance. Or if you wear trainers and you're going around Richmond Park for the first time because you're scared to clip in and out at the traffic lights or whatever, like I, I feel I feel that experience. I've been there. I can remember I spent a lot of time going through what does it feel like to be in that situation? How do we deliver a message, a product, and you know a service to those people that makes them feel better on their bike? You know, And every single day I come to work, I go away thinking, have I improved people's experience of cycling? That's my only job. And I work really hard at doing that. I make sure the whole team understand that that's our purpose. And so to coming up with the right message at the right time in the winter, you obviously talk about winter kit and staying warm in the summer. You talk about summer kit and being cool, but we also have lots of different subjects that we can feed into different places in the, in the season. And also speaking to different demographics to make sure they feel heard, recognized and relevant to us as a brand. One thing that I noticed you sort of seem to have stuck to road cycling was a lot of brands doing like gravel specific stuff with like, you know, bottle cages on the helmets and stuff like that. Is that something you've done deliberately? I want to like stick to road or you just think that your kit's just, you can just ride it off road anyway? Uh, so I never want to say never. There's always, you know, we, we must always develop with the, with the industry. But basically, I didn't feel like we'd fully established ourselves on the road uh, yet. So that's why we haven't gone into anything more peripheral, I would call it. And also, we've really tried to land the performance message. Like, we want to be known as the performance brand if you're trying to get PB in a local 10 or, you know, you're participating in races of any sort. Um, but equally, I describe it as if you just want to be a little bit better, then we're the brand that helps you be a little bit better, whether that's taking away distractions of discomfort away from your ride so as you can focus on your performance or, you know, wearing a power speed suit or skin suit to go out and do a 10 and, you know, at 45, 50 Ks an hour or whatever. So that's, that's always been our purpose. But I think there is a, there is an opportunity to develop and expand that range into gravel, maybe mountain bike. We've done a little bit of off bike wear, but not a huge amount, but I think it needs to be done really carefully and in, and in the right order and also to the right degree. So as, we don't alienate customers coming to our website or coming to the, the brand and expecting to be able to buy something or not something else. You've got to be careful. There's a, there's a balance to be had there. And in terms of that, so when you're releasing new kit, obviously every brand's like, oh yeah, develop with World Tour team with this rider, this rider. How much of that is, are you actually getting input from your sponsored riders, sponsored teams, or like Bradley Wiggins on the Wiggins kit? How much of that are you actually getting directly from the people and how much is a bit like, are we just, you know, a bit of feedback? No, we don't do just a bit of feedback, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, we challenge ourselves. So I'd say in the first instance, we start with a really good base. You know, we, that's, my, that's my job, you know. But, but what I found out when I, when I first sponsored the World Tour team, which was the McLaren, Bahrain McLaren team, even professional athletes, professional cyclists who I thought would be the most like me had still quite broad expectations or preferences across the you know you imagine you get 50 or 60 different bits of kit as a world tour pro 
And I remember sitting in focus group conversations with sometimes the whole team on a training camp where they would argue about the height of a collar on a jacket. And one would want it smaller and one would want it bigger and one would want it thicker and one would want it thinner. Like you kind of have to assimilate that information down into something because we can't make, we don't make 50 different bits of kit, 50 bespoke ways for 50 riders. That would be absolutely mental. But we do have to take the feedback on board. And I think that from a World Tour perspective, in particular, their feedback. So when we, when I was at the very beginning of the, like the World Tour kit package development process, I did it on my own. I went to the wind tunnel a lot. We, we basically had aerodynamicists uh, come with me and then we would go through ideas and brainstorm during the sessions, go away, analyze, look at the results and then redevelop and go back again. And I probably, I've probably spent, you know, hundreds of hours in a wind tunnel, probably more than almost anyone apart from maybe Dan Bingham, I would say, just in the amount of effort that we've put into developing an aero package. So in the beginning, what I did was I developed a product solely to be fast with not really any, not no consideration, but basically all I cared was that it was fast and that, that I got good results in the wind tunnel test, testing. But if it was uncomfortable, I was like, well, it's uncomfortable going as hard as you can anyway, so I don't need to really worry about that. When we came to give that package to the World Tour riders, they were like, look, this is comfortable, but we're not just doing a 20-minute 10. We're doing 250K you know, classics or grand tour stages. We have to wear this for six or seven hours. Like, We really need to work hard. So we went through a second phase where the product had delivered and had done a fantastic job getting the performance nailed. But we needed to now make it um, a little bit cheaper because there was some quite exceptional fabrics in there and a little bit more comfortable to make that a really easy product for them to choose instead of going shorts and jersey, even though they had a really good speed suit to, to choose from. And actually that process really challenged me to basically change materials and fits and cuts and shapes of things without compromising the incredible results we'd done in the wind tunnel with the performance, but equally making some significant progress. So as those riders wanted to wear their speed suit or skin suit, even you look at someone like Ben Healy is wearing his skin suit in, uh, in the Giro to win his stages and that, and they were in that for six hours. So that was a big job and it took a lot of feedback and, you know, uh, anyone who's ever done a world tour team and serviced a world tour team, there'll be a few people out there. I'm sure on listening to this podcast, it is a monumental effort. They are so high maintenance, you know, like they really need it to be right. You just, you cannot shy away into the shadows and just hope they'll accept the first thing you give them. You have to really take that on the chin and move that product along in the way that they're asking. One thing that will make you happy is I once went on a press trip for a bike launch with Chris Opie and I was trying to get out of him like the best kit he's worn, you know, you know, I know you work with Lacole, but who, what's actually the best? but he was very consistently stuck to the fact that he really liked the call. Even like <laughs> stuff that you don't see as much advertised, like the shoes, which he was like, they don't want me to need me to wear the shoes. I can wear any shoes, but I choose the call shoes. I feel like you can, you know, you know, he's back, got your back there. That's good. He's a good, he's a good boy, that Chris. <laughs> <laughs> of all the pro kits that you've done, not technically because you'll say the most recent one's the best, but what's the best design that you've had? I mean, do you know what? You know what design's like? When it's fresh... It feels the best and then it ages and you kind of go off it. That's why we need new, that's why we need new things. That's the same for every single person in the world. So something that's fresh is always a bit more attractive, but you know, I say that at the same time as saying my wardrobe, given that I've got the choice of pretty much every product in our, in our range and also every color from every season since the beginning. So that's like 15 years. I pretty much still only wear black and Navy. (laughs) 
<laughs> so uh, I'm quite a conservative dresser. I also like to wear black and navy casually as well. So I don't look much different off or on the bike. <laughs> With regard to like sponsorship, obviously you were name sponsor of the women's Lakal Wahoo team. Uh, what happened with the ending of that? Because obviously they then, when Lakal had to pull out, they were struggling to find that extra sponsor. Obviously they have it now with Life Plus, but what was the sort of saga behind that? Uh, there wasn't really a saga. I mean, we obviously went, we supported that team. They they had a, a few difficulties in finding the budget. And actually we came in to support them at a time when a different brand pulled out. And, you know, we, we spent how, how many years? About, about three or four years, four or five years maybe even. You know, because... For me, sponsoring teams and supporting all levels of cycling and genders is really important. So that was a natural progression for us to have a World Tour team and a women's team. The The way that it kind of developed and finished was they weren't sure that they were going to have enough to have a team in the first place. And we needed to have certainty around what budget we had to work with, given that we are also facing some challenges between 2022 and 2023. And they couldn't give us that clarity at the time. And unfortunately, I completely sympathise because sponsors don't care about critical paths and timeframes. You know, they make decisions on their own timeframe. And if you said to them, well, I just need to know by next week, they would they would just completely disregard that if it, didn't, if it wasn't sorted. So that was obviously a really difficult time for them and for us. And ultimately, the, the upshot was that we had to, well, they chose not to kind of continue with those on the basis that uh, there was so much uncertainty and we couldn't you know, we couldn't really operate with that much uncertainty either. So that's just a natural kind of progression and slightly sorry, but not uncommon sponsor kind of driven conversation, which you can see in pretty much every, well, lots of teams in the last sort of 12 months have had to go through something similar. Yeah, teams on races are struggling at the moment and sponsorship is only sort of one slice of the pie, so to speak. And as their former racer yourself, what else, and I mean, you know, it's not going to be obviously an easy answer, but what do you think needs to be done to ensure kind of more more success in this in this area? I mean, I have to kind of hold my hands up and say I'm not an expert at this, and I don't have, even though I was given a bit of notice on what sort of questions you might be asking, I, like, I am denied about this. And, you know, I thought probably more on the lines of women's cycling, but equally it's the UK scene is suffering men and women. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... It's awful. It's shocking. In my life as a cyclist, I don't think it's ever been this bad. So that's really disappointing. When you also think at the same time, there are more world tour pros, you know, riding in the continent than there's ever been. So it's not like there's a lack of talent in this country. It's really a commercial problem, not a, not a rider problem. And that's really sad and disappointing to see, you know, so many good riders deserving of places and, and contracts not getting them at the middle level they're at the top level but they're not in the kind of lower and middle levels i don't actually know i think like i said my wife works at uk sport and she'll have lots of ideas about things like this and often she'll tell me but i'm not unfortunately engaged enough in the subject to come up with a really viable answer that would potentially provide some answers i'm sorry no that's but i mean it's a hard question with no easy answer at all <laughs> Going back into sponsorship of teams, domestic teams, something that you'd be looking into or would you, because of how the other ones have gone, would you then want to go a different way about it, trying to support British racing? No, my heart's in, you know, UK cycling. My Literally, my heart is there. So it's all about commercially, you know, fitting the plan and being justified when from a budget perspective. 
you know, we've had to make some difficult decisions. It's been it's been hard for consumer brands in the last 18 months. Anyone who had a really strong kind of COVID lockdown period suffered with changing consumer behavior since then. And, you know, that's unfortunately meant that we hadn't quite got the same budget or we hadn't got as much as I would want to to put into different areas. But it's definitely something that we'll keep on the radar and be be very you know, keen to participate in and support going forward, definitely. You said, obviously, your ride with Alex Richardson. What do you take from the sort of St. Piram model of how they're trying to run the team? Do you sort of think that's going to work out? Be a bit more specific. What do you mean by that? In terms of not having that name sponsor and relying on the name sponsor to prolong their life as a team. My, I'll be careful how I say this, but I think my view on that is it's winging it and it's tricky to... Not saying it's easy to hold any sponsor for any amount of time, but you know they're doing it. Listen, they—they are they are they the one of the only or the or the only two one of with two. Uh, yeah one of two, which is uh, Andrew McQuaid's team is the other one, is it? Uh, uh, Trinity, yeah. So basically, you know they they're doing a fantastic job. They've got a continental team in a really difficult time when no other continental teams exist apart from one. So you know you've got to commend them for that. I just think there's. You know, I wouldn't, if I was riding for them, I wouldn't be, you know, getting a mortgage out and, you know, earning my money thinking it's going to carry on like that for very long. But I'd you be would be there. wearing a black kit, which is obviously ideal. <laughs> yeah, I'll be happy about that. That's true. <laughs> In terms of like the modern uh, racers, Tom Pickup was a Wiggins the Cole rider. Do you think he can eventually win the Tour de France? Good question. Do I think he can win the Tour de France? I tell you what, I watched. I don't know if you've seen this, but the uh, Netflix documentary about the tour. I've seen it, yeah. So, if we're talking about him specifically, I was quite surprised to hear a soundbite that he said just before he won his stage at Alpe d'Huez, which was, "I'm in the biggest bike race in the world, but I'm not really enjoying myself." And the reason I say that is, I'm not 100 percent sure he wants to do what it takes to win the Tour de France. So, because he loves his mountain biking, cyclocross, he loves, and you would have to specialize. I think you'd have to just be a bit more focused. So whether he would want to or not, I don't know, but he probably is capable. He is one of the most freakishly talented individuals. It is off the charts, like uh, unbelievable to people. that. And what is, what is even more impressive is most people can't even comprehend the level of skill and talent that boy has in every discipline, in every aspect of cycling on and off road time trial everything you can't get most people can't get close enough to how good he is to even appreciate how good he actually is and i feel very lucky to have supported him in the early years and been part of that journey and he's a super super guy and i would you know i would absolutely love him to win the tour de france what was that like seeing him obviously you've ridden and seen a load of the golden generation of British cyclists come through and sort of not the back end but later in that you see like how, how old was he like 16 winning senior titles. Was that pretty crazy to see? Well, it's good to know that when we got beat by him when he was still a junior, he was world, world class. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't anybody beating, you know, in things like the Tour Series or the Crit Champs and things that he won when he, was, when he wasn't even senior. And he's gone on to show that's why he could win because he was that good. Um, yeah, it's been great. I love, uh, genuinely, you know, that was the thing I was going to say about my personal progression in cycling. With my job, I have to be comfortable with my career. I have to be satisfied in other people's success. And I have to be, you know, happy and prepared to take fulfillment out of assisting someone else in achieving their goals. You know, it's not about me anymore. Like I'm a father, 
and it's about my kids. Oh, I'm a retired athlete, but I'm a sponsor of different levels of cycling and I want them to do the best. And I, you know, it's a bit like my job as a CEO in the company. I'm here to provide you with the absolute best ingredients I can possibly get my hands on to make your job the best it can possibly be or the easiest you can make it or you can achieve the most you can achieve. That's my job. It's not doing the, it's not doing the work. So it's really quite timely that all of those things, I became a parent three months after I retired from my last race. You know, obviously we employ lots of people and we foster a culture of support and assistance in this business, which feeds right down into sponsored teams. Anyone who's got a partnership with Lacole, you know, we want to do the best for the partnership. We want to make the job easy for you. We want to see real success. We don't want to use up any extra energy or bandwidth, you know, getting through niggles and whatever. Like, it's really important. I take that really seriously and I work really hard to make sure that we do that 100% every day. If there's one thing that you could change about the bike industry right now in general, obviously not just bikes because you don't make bikes, what would it be? Well, I was going to say I'd get rid of disc brakes forever. Oh. <laughs> don't like them. Aesthetically. I don't like anything about them. <laughs> wow. Not even the fact that you can brake more confidently in the rain. <laughs> nah, it's over. It's overvalued for yeah. It's got other. It's got other problems. Uh, I, I would. I'm not going to use the word hate as I tell my kids. It's much too strong a word to use. But I really, I really don't like them. You and Chris Froome. Yeah. <laughs> but I have this argument with Chris Opie because he loves them. Yeah, well, he rides off road as well, so he probably experiences the the power better, right? I'm only talking about road cycling disc brakes. That's what about within uh, Lacole specifically? What's one thing that you sort of want that you wish that Lacole could do right now? If there is anything, obviously, you might think and we're perfect. Spoiler alert! (laughs) (laughs) I probably don't have anything, but only because if I really wanted it that much, I would make it happen. Yes that's the personality I am and that's why I started a business so if it hasn't happened it meant it's not the right time yet and this has been recorded before the Tour de France it's going to be released after the Tour de France where's Jai Hindley going to finish? Jai Hindley can finish on the podium very nice can or will? Uh, will Uh, I'll tell you why I say that Jai is best suited to Grand Tours Mm -hmm. he needs big big mountains in the third week to be his best. Like he's not the punchier, like Podjakar can do them all. That's why he's won a couple already. Um, Vinkergaard also needs long, hard mountains in the third week, which is where you'll see there's differences coming. And having won it last year, he's shown that he can do that first week when it comes to keeping close enough to the, you know, technical, either yellow jersey or the uh, favourites, you know, category before before they've got the jerseys. But I think he he can he will do a good job in the Tour de France. Yeah he will get up on the podium. Well, you know, everyone listens to this now will be like, oh my God, he was right. Buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then you, you have a Netflix episode featuring Lacole next year. That's the idea. Yeah. That's what we're looking for. <laughs> right. Yantu Barker, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Lovely to speak to you both. Well, I thought Yantu Barker was a really good guest. Yeah, that was really entertaining, wasn't it? Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where he starts to get starts to get quite deep about certain things. And it's like, mm, do I want to ask him about that stuff? Do you sort of... Do you navigate around that stuff? Yeah, it's hard to yeah. tell in the moment, I think. I always just let them talk for however long they want to talk about these things. It was really interesting to hear him talking about that sort of period between where he sort of, obviously he didn't know 
think at the time it was depression, but if you think about how far our mental health conversations have come on since then, he probably would never have had any idea. But it'd be really interesting that if, if he was in the same situation these days, whether he would have the same sort of second half of his career because he had more understanding of what was going on in the middle. Yeah, because I've spoken to former riders before and they always say, you know, when you reflect on your career, how would you like to improve conditions for riders currently? And it's always like having a sort of exit plan in place and having the support that's needed to adjust to cyclist life and then former cyclist life. But yeah, that was a really, a really honest conversation. It's one of the things I don't, really don't envy sports people for is that having to split your life like that. You focus everything on that sports career and then all of a sudden it can be, what on earth do I do now? I'm such a homebody as well. Like I'd really just miss my home, like going to France or Spain for like three weeks and then a training camp somewhere else. It'd like throw me off. But like you were saying, like when you sort of realise it's a bit of a holiday, I feel like you you can start to it not miss home as much yeah that's very true (laughs) but yeah he was really good and i did see uh yesterday maybe that lacola sponsored the british continental which does that media stuff around british domestic races which is obviously good but we didn't get on to mentioning that oh brilliant yeah i'm i think i met them at the rydale grand prix i think when i was doing freelance work for british cycling we were like in the same little finish line van thing that's actually just like a really hot box <laughs> but yeah anything else to add about Yanto Barker uh, I kind of wish it was visual so he could show us inside his closet and all the 15 years of of clothing that would have been sick but fortunately it's not visual because I'm not coping well with this heat <laughs> <laughs> well when when they inevitably get some kind of documentary series on whether it be on YouTube or anything else yeah. Which is interesting, I feel like retiring now as a rider, it feels like there's more options because there's a whole YouTubing, Instagram stuff, which obviously a lot of riders are doing. Slash also, just go and do gravel racing, mate. You're sorted. Yeah, that's, that's the plan for everyone. Oh, I finished rope racing, let's go gravel. That's, that's, I feel it's the same for journalists as well. So when you're done with, with, with pro racing, you're just going to go and do some gravel journalism. And we all know that how we get into cycling journalism in the first place is a failed cycling career. <laughs> all right, Robin, it's been a pleasure. As it has with you, my friend. See you next time. And don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast comes from Cyclist, which is also a magazine which you can subscribe to and get every single month. It's filled to the brim with epic rides, gear reviews, and more. Plus, we're also a website, cyclist.co.uk, and you can check out our brilliant social channels for up-to-date pro, tech, and everything else coverage. That's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Threads, TikTok, Strava, and LinkedIn.